0: Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargay, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you.
1: Our scripture for today is Matthew four twelve through 23, and it's on the screen or in the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, and he left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. And now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down into the grass. How to kneel down in the grass. How to be idle and blessed. How to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me. What else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Perhaps you have heard this poem, or more likely the final line of it, by the late poet Mary Oliver. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I appreciate the fact that Mary's suggestion for a wild and precious life was not to strive and hustle and accomplish everything under the sun because we've only got one life. But her idea of a wild and precious life, a life well spent, was wandering through the woods, admiring a grasshopper, and laying down in the grass In our text for today, the fact that these disciples, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, up and left their work one day is wild and precious. We know with hindsight of 2,000-some years, because we know the rest of the story, that the work they did, the lives they lived, were extraordinary. The roads they walked with Jesus, the dinners they shared with him, the stories they told, I mean, we could only hope for a piece of that life. But they didn't know, couldn't have known, what would follow when they dropped their nets that day. One summer day, a man walked up to them and said, follow me. And they did. And I wonder what made them walk away from their nets that day. I mean, was there something so compelling about Jesus' invitation that they couldn't help but lay their work down and follow him right out of their hometown? There's no evidence that Jesus had been preaching or performing miracles nearby. Presumably, they had never seen or heard of the man before. And we can assume that they were doing something useful with their lives as fishermen. Important. It paid their bills and fed their families. I mean, were they even looking for a new life? This call doesn't seem to meet an obvious need, It's not the same command as Jesus' call to the lame man to get up and walk, or to the sinner, go and sin no more. Rather, this call seems intrusive and disruptive, random even. But I wonder if they were already feeling restless when Jesus found them that day. No one drops their net and walks away from everything they know without being good and ready to do so without some kind of deep, pre-existing dissatisfaction, some longing for a different kind of life. What was it about the fishermen that made them so willing and ready to hear the invitation from Jesus and drop everything and leave? Jesus himself had already left Nazareth, the place where he had settled, and he had moved to Capernaum by the sea so that the words of Isaiah rang true— Just as liberation had come to God's people before, so it was coming again. A new reign was coming, and Jesus proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And perhaps this idea of repentance tells a little bit of why the fishermen were ready to lay down their nets that day. Often we think of repentance as feeling bad, as feeling remorseful. We associate it with groveling or some kind of pious sorrow. But repentance is not a feeling that we have in our heart. It is something we do with our lives. If it doesn't dramatically affect our actions, then it is not true repentance. For repentance means to choose a different path, to be different. Repentance signals an abrupt end of life on autopilot or business as usual. Repentance is disruptive and rude. It messes with our best-laid plans and tightly ordered lives. The best way to translate Jesus' call to repent is to say, get yourself a new orientation for the way you live, and then act on it. Be radically different. Stop what you're doing and do something different. So different that people will call you crazy and reckless So different that people will wonder why you stopped doing something that seemed as sensible as catching fish and making a living and instead have followed some mystical prophet through the countryside. Because that is the call to discipleship, is it not? It's not a call to ordered and civilized living. Following Jesus does not mean that we are obedient agents of the state any more than these disciples were obedient agents to Rome they laid down their allegiances with their nets and left for a wild and precious life. Could we do the same if called? To leave behind the things that make us feel secure and steady, the things that have promised us prosperity and love and attention, the things we think make for proper worship and appropriate Christian lives, to lay down our nets, our grudges, the wounds we nurse, and go out into the unknown? Could we leave behind the familiar, what we deem as right and pure, and instead let our restlessness lead us into something new and beautiful like we've never seen before? Not because we are promised some great life of meaning and purpose, full of productivity and progress and results, not because the world is a mission field and we must colonize it with our version of Jesus, but rather, are we ready to be invited into a life of wonder and delight, to be called over and over into the mystery that is following Jesus, the miracle of hope. Explorers in the 18th and 19th centuries were obsessed with voyages to the farthest northern pole. I don't think they were looking for Santa, but they were looking for the North Pole. And many ships were wrecked, and many, many men died on these voyages, from exposure to hypothermia to scurvy to lead poisoning in their water. But they weren't the first humans to encounter these large swaths of frozen land. Indigenous people lived there and had learned to survive the hypothermic conditions and were more than willing to share their life-saving wisdom. But European explorers waited far too long to learn from the indigenous people and thus suffered mass death because of it. And there's this one expedition that stands out in my mind as a cautionary tale, the Franklin Expedition. In 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. This expedition was one of dignity, a true English voyage. Rather than adapting to the conditions that they would encounter, their ship was outfitted outfitted in ways proper to the Royal Navy Officers Club in England. They sailed out in style. And each of their three sailing vessels carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two or three years of voyage. And instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ, China place settings for all the officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The silver was of ornate Victorian design, very heavy, and each officer had a set with their engraved initials and family crests. How quaint. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. They set sail and were never heard from again. After three years of no word from the Franklin expedition, England set out ships to learn what had happened to this fleet of ships. They encountered indigenous peoples who had hazarded across groups of dead members from this expedition. The 138 officers and men had been split up and had all died of various things, but one group of corpses found was particularly noteworthy. When the ships had been trapped by ice, Many of the men had gotten out of the boat and set out on foot to find help. And they outfitted themselves with the things they thought they may need for the journey. And later search parties encountered a particular group of bodies. And some of these men showed evidence of cannibalism, which meant that in some pitiful final attempt of survival, this group had cannibalized themselves And their bodies were found with things they had chosen to carry, the things they deemed most important for their trek on foot. In their pockets and packs were not extra clothing or coal or food. They were not things that would help them survive their wild conditions or adapt to the extreme weather they were sure to encounter. Rather, in these pockets and packs were place settings of sterling silver flatware with the officers' initials and family crests. They found a letter clip, a piece of backgammon board, chocolate, tea, lots of table silver, fine blue cloth, and a silk handkerchief. The writer Annie Dillard wrote of this expedition in an essay, where she contrasts her experience at church with this doomed voyage. And she writes, if you are an officer with the Franklin Expedition, and do not know what you are doing or where you are, but think you cannot eat food except from sterling silver tableware. You cannot get away with it. Wherever we go, there seems to be only business at hand, that of finding workable compromises between the sublimity of our ideas and the absurdity of the fact of us. And what Annie Dillard in her beautiful prose means is that if we are in a voyage of unknown conditions, of an unknown end, but think we can only eat or worship one way, the way we have known, then we are doomed. We must adapt to the conditions where we are. Because if we are in the Arctic, we are not in England anymore. And we cannot act as if we are in England, or we will surely die with trinkets in our pockets. She says we must find workable solutions between our ideal situation and the reality before us. Will we spend our one wild and precious life filling our pockets with trinkets, only to die in our absurdity? Will we hold so tightly to our silver and our precious keepsakes that our adventure is doomed from the beginning? Or will we lay them down like the disciples laid down their nets and follow the one who knows the way? Will we lay down our preconceptions of how church and worship and community should be and forge a new path? Will we put down our preferences and our traditions and the things that weigh us down, like flatware? and organs, and a vast collection of literature, which I'm sure was riveting, and instead learn to use things that will help us live and grow and adapt and be able to follow the one we love into a grand and beautiful adventure into the unknown and
0: unfamiliar. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church Podcast Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.